0: You may recall during our studies in Revelation that I mentioned once or twice at least that a good companion book to the book of Revelation would be Daniel. And so, and I even said, I'm pretty sure I said once or twice, maybe we'll study Daniel next. And so that's what we're going to do. It's been... um, I can't remember when we last studied an Old Testament book on Sunday morning, but we're going to do that in spite of the fact that there are some of those young progressives in the postmodern church who have said, Andy Stanley, the, the son of the great Charles Stanley, actually, Andy Stanley said Christians don't need to study the Old Testament, that it doesn't apply to us. But the, our entire foundation of our faith. There's a reason why they coined the the term Judeo-Christian faith, because the Christian faith is built upon the foundation of Judaism. The Bible tells us that we are grafted in to the vine of Israel, and so to say that we should not study the Old Testament is actually quite inaccurate. Anyway, let's do it. The author, as you probably know, is Daniel. The date is approximately when Daniel wrote the book, approximately 537 B.C. His name, I like this, means God is my judge. And that's an accurate statement. He was a statesman in the court of the heathen Babylonian monarchs. He was taken captive as a youth to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. So it was quite a long time after that, towards the end of his life, when he wrote the book. And he spent the rest of his life as a governmental official and as a prophet of the true God. Uh, He claimed to have written this book in chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus identified him as a prophet in Matthew 24, 15, also Mark 13, 14 but he did not officially technically uh, occupy a prophetic office as it were partly because they were in exile in babylon so his book of daniel is found in the third division of the hebrew bible we have three divisions we have the law the prophets and the writings and he's in that third group known as the writings rather than the second group the prophets And throughout his life, Daniel was known for being uncompromising and faithful to his God. Now the times in which he lived and uh, ministered, if you will, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and the others as captive to Babylon because of the events recorded in chapter 2 where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He was given a place of prominence and responsibility in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But after his death, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, it would appear that Daniel fell from favor with the subsequent rulers, but he was recalled to interpret the writing that appeared in Belshazzar's feast, chapter 5, verse 13. Remember where the handwriting on the wall? You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Meany, meany, tekel, So he was made one of three you might say, presidents under King Darius in chapter 6, verse 1, and he lived until the third year of Cyrus, 536 B.C. His ministry was to testify in his personal life and in his prophecies to the power of God. And though in exile, the people of Israel were not deserted by God, and Daniel revealed many details about his plan for their future, he also traced the course of of gentile world powers. This is where his prophetic ministry comes in. From his own day all the way up until the second coming of Christ. That's why Daniel is a good companion book to Revelation. Towards the end of his book, he will take us all the way to the second coming. Now the contents of the book, there are important prophecies in the book following the course of gentile kingdoms as I mentioned, the first of all the Babylonian kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greek empire, in the Roman Empire, specifically chapters 2 and 7. Details concerning Medo-Persia and Greece, chapter 8. More details concerning Greece in chapter 11, and the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The activities of the Antichrist in chapter 11, verses 36 to 45. Some key doctrines that we will be introduced to in this book. One, personal separation. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, come out from among them and be ye separate. Daniel and his companions will be challenged to embrace the culture, the lifestyle of the Babylonians, but they wisely resist that. Personal separation, chapters 1, 3, 6, 9, and 10. Doctrines concerning angels, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. The resurrection, believe it or not, chapter 12, verse 2. Antichrist, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11. And of course, some of the favorite stories that we're all familiar with and even learned as children in Sunday school. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den, chapter 6. So we've got some really uh, interesting and fun stuff coming up. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and that will be all that we will cover today to begin with. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God, little g. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time as we have an introduction now to the book of Daniel, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding. And just, Lord, give us a little jump start, a little kick start here as we begin this great study and a great book. We thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, as we mentioned previously, would be around 605 B.C. Jeremiah 25.1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Let me explain that already. You're probably thinking, wait a minute, there's a contradiction. Was it the third year or the fourth year? Now in Israel, the accession year, the year that a king would ascend to the throne was counted as the first year whereas in Babylon it was reckoned separately so that the next year was considered the first year of the reign. Daniel, therefore, because he's in captivity in Babylon when he writes this book, he dates this event from the Babylonian viewpoint as the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. So hopefully that'll clear that up for you. It sounds like there could be a contradiction but there's not. Now Jehoiakim was the oldest son of the godly king Josiah, the one who brought the people back to the word of the Lord. Remember that? But as so often was the case in the northern kingdom of Israel pretty much all the kings were bad. But in the southern kingdom you would have a really good king, but then his son might turn out to be really bad. It was kind of an up and down roller coaster ride. So Josiah was a great king, but Jehoiakim, his oldest son, was made king in place of his younger brother in 609 by Pharaoh Nico, who was the uh, Pharaoh in Egypt at the time. And so at this point, Judah was a vassal state under Egypt's control for four years, and then they came under the control of Babylon. Jehoiakim squandered state funds on a new palace, Jeremiah 22, 13 through 19, and he destroyed Jeremiah's writings, which warned him of coming judgment, and he died in 598 B.C. So now we're told, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, I know it looks like Jehoiakim, but it's actually pronounced Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now we talk about meanings of names, Nebuchadnezzar's name, you may hear me refer to him from time to time as Nebi. I like to give nicknames to the Bible characters, especially the bad ones. But Nebi, whose name means Nebo, protect my frontier. So Nebo was one of his gods, named by his parents Nebuchadnezzar. Nebo, protect my frontier. Well, he reigned for 43 years, from 605 to 562 B.C. He was sent by his father, Nabopolassar, to lead the Babylonian army against Egypt, which he defeated at Carchemish. You've probably heard of Carchemish, famous battle there, in May, June 605. He was called back home with the death of his father late in July to be crowned king. And with this time frame in mind, he wasn't yet king of Babylon when he invaded Jerusalem in 605 B.C. And so the term, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is used prophetically, if you will, in this context, because he wasn't yet technically king. So verse 2, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Notice that. Who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand? The Lord. You know, sometimes people, and we're people, Blame the devil for what God is doing. And that's a big mistake, because if we blame the devil, then we have an excuse. Not my fault. It's the devil. The devil made me do it, honey. Flip Wilson. If you remember him, you're as old as I am. But sometimes people blame the devil for what God is doing. Because, again, if we don't have a true biblical worldview, then we'll have an attitude, well, God never, ever punishes. God never condemns. you got the extremes, and that's what the devil always tries to do. He tries to get us into one extreme or the other. So you have one group over here that says, oh, God is love, which he is. God would never do that. God would never punish me. And then you have the group over here that says God is a big, mean ogre just waiting for the opportunity to squash me like a bug. But the truth lies somewhere in between. Yes, God is love. And we do read in the book of James that mercy triumphs over judgment. But in this case, God had given them multiple, plenteous, numerous opportunities to repent. We're talking about the people of Judah here. And they did not do it. And so the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So it's important, again, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've talked about this many times. God never condemns his children, but he does convict us of sin. But you know what? We have a choice. We can respond to that conviction of the Holy Spirit, or we can ignore it. So then what is God to do? If He tries to reach us, He tries to convict us, and we ignore Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. And so it's important when we're going through different kinds of trials, tribulations, difficulties, Our immediate response should not be, oh, God's out to get me. But it also shouldn't be, oh, the devil's out to get me. It should be, Lord, what's going on here? Please show me. Am I under attack from the enemy? Are you trying to show me something? Are you trying to teach me something? Is there something in my life that's not right? And you're trying to lovingly, gently chasten me. Oh, even scourge. That's a pretty strong word. The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, in his hand. Why? Because Jehoiakim refused to submit to God, to yield to God, to obey God, and was leading his people in the wrong direction. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32. This ties in with communion that we had this morning. If we would judge ourselves, and again, as I mentioned this morning, self-examination really means allowing the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts because we're not objective enough. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Again, now, it's important to understand here, Paul is not talking about the judgment that leads to eternal hell and damnation. He's talking about the judgment that comes upon believers, again, to chasten us, to scourge us, to keep us on the right track, to keep us on the right path. Mercy triumphs over judgment, God would much rather pour out His mercy upon us and His grace than His judgment. But Paul writes, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. God says, if you're not going to be open and objective, be like King David and ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, and you're going to bury your sins and cover them up, then I will have to intervene. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And so that's what's happening here with Jehoiakim and the people of Israel. It's really out of love that God allows this to happen for them to be taken into captivity to bring correction into their lives individually and as a nation. Two reasons are given for the Babylonian captivity. One, continued idolatry. I would propose that all of us here in this room today at one time or another have been guilty of some form of idolatry anything or anyone that draws our attention away from God can be an idol right it could be an athlete it could be a whole sports team unless it's the Denver Broncos then it's okay no I'm just (laughs) I'm just kidding there hasn't been much to worship there lately anyway Uh, (laughs) it could be you know a famous musician singer you name it money Jesus said you can't serve both God and mammon. Money can be an idol. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself. It's a needed resource. But when we begin to love it, you know, like uh, Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, my precious, then it's a problem. Then it's a problem. One, continued idolatry. Two, failure to give the land... 70 sabbatical years of rest. 2 Corinthians 36, 14. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and all the people in the land of Canaan, the various people groups, were idolaters. I think we talked maybe recently about how God uh, told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, every man, woman, boy, girl, and animal. There were hundreds and hundreds of years of all-out idolatry practiced by these various people groups. And so it tells us the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations. We talked about, I believe, the temple prostitutes, both male and female, fornication and adultery and so forth used as part of their Illicit, adulterous, idolatrous worship, so-called worship. And defile the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Now, Leviticus 25, 2 through 4. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit, But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And so there's both a spiritual application and a practical one. It's actually quite beneficial to let the land have that year of rest. And they were told, whatever just grows up naturally, without you cultivating it, you can still use that for food. You can still eat it. But no cultivating of the land, a Sabbath for the land. And the entire time that the Israelites were in the land, they did not obey God, they did not practice that. And so, 70 Sabbath years were skipped, and by the way, they would be taken into captivity in Babylon for how long? 70 years. It also will come into play when we get to chapter 9, and we look at Daniel's 70 weeks, 490 years pronounced upon the children of Israel 7 times 70 for the completion of God's plan with his chosen people. He Nebuchadnezzar Nebi brought the articles into the treasure house of God, of his God. So again because of the idolatry of the Israelites God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to plunder the temple and dedicate the treasures of God's holy temple to his own gods. I want to read a passage here from 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, his prophets, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans were the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. The treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. All those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath. Yeah, people are in captivity, the rest are dead. Guess what? The land gets to have its Sabbath. Seventy of them to make up for the 70 that the Israelites never practiced. Verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Now, the word master here, or eunuch, the Hebrew word means those who were castrated. You probably already knew that. But it also stood for officials in general. The NIV says, rather than master of the eunuchs, it says chief of his court officials. But it does literally mean the chief or the master over those who had been castrated. And we know there are a number of reasons why they practiced that. One was to protect the king's harem from any potential invasion by undesirable males. It also, uh, just like we tend to neuter dogs and cats and horses and so forth, it calms down the aggressiveness of the personality. And there are no, there's no specific information on whether or not Daniel and his friends had been made eunuchs. There, there's possibly an implication that that was the case. There's no record of Daniel ever being married. Second Kings 20.18, They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, at the very least, some of those taken into captivity were made into eunuchs, apparently, according to this prophecy in 2 Kings 20.18. He told the master of the eunuchs to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. And so it would appear that Daniel and his associates like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were from the royal class of nobility in Judah. And that may be one of the reasons why they were taken into captivity rather than murdered by Nebuchadnezzar and his invading army. It goes on to tell us the ones that he was looking for. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. In other words, Nebi was looking for the cream of the crop, the best of the best, as we sometimes say, a few good men. He was looking for those who were gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand. And so, having been selected, Daniel and his friends apparently were highly intelligent, already highly educated when they were taken into captivity, whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So their instructions were to include subjects such as agriculture, astrology, astronomy, mathematics, and the Akkadian language, which was another Semitic language. We know Hebrew is a Semitic language. Aramaic is a Semitic language. There are a number of those cultures, ethnic groups in the Middle East, who have a common root in the Semitic languages and they would be studying the Akkadian language which was the language of Babylon at the time, the official language. And so we could say here they were to be taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So Daniel and his associates whether they were their friends, family, relatives that were part of this upper class group from Judah were to be trained as wise men. Does that ring a bell? Remember the wise men who came from the east to see the baby Jesus? They were astronomers and astrologers and all of the above. They were, in fact, Chaldeans. And quite likely, Daniel, who became the head of that order in Babylon, probably taught those under his leadership and authority about the coming Messiah. The Chaldeans are associated with the city of Ur and the biblical patriarch Abraham who was born in Ur, if you recall. And when Abraham left Ur with his family, the Bible says they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Genesis 11:31. And so there is a common shared heritage between God's people And the Chaldeans, that's where Abraham actually came from. Abraham, as you probably know, was originally an idolater before he met the one true God. And God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. So we see very interesting connections here. And now we see Daniel and his friends being trained up to be part of that order. You could say that the Chaldeans were the intellectual elites of their day. But they also employed something that most intellectual elites do not employ. They employed the use of the supernatural. Although we're seeing more and more funny business going on in the high-tech scientific intellectual community. I think it's called Satanism. But they employed the supernatural. We, specifically, as we'll see in chapter 2, interpretation of dreams, astrology, which is different than astronomy, Astronomy is more of a a technical scientific study of the constellations, the stars, the planets, and so forth, but astronomy has spiritual implications as well. Hence, the term used in the Gospels for these wise men, these Chaldeans, coming from the East to worship the baby Jesus, remember they were called what? The Magi, which is connected to the word magic. So very interesting connections here and we will see in chapter 2 where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream whereas the other members of that cast, of that group, could not. Why? Because Daniel had the Holy Spirit and that gave him the edge. You know having the Holy Spirit gives you the edge? Did you know that? And you know that, that Jesus said that God loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So have you asked Him lately to fill you with His Holy Spirit? Because He will, but He's a gentleman. Just like when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus will knock at your door, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He won't knock the door down. Now, He might knock really loud sometimes, but He won't knock it down. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, because He is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he also is a gentleman. He will not force you to do anything you don't want to do. And I've heard people at different times say, God, why didn't you stop me? Why did you let me do that? Because you're created in His image and you have a free will, you have a choice. God won't force you to do anything you don't want to do. If you want to be saved, He will save you. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, He will fill you. But you need to ask. Okay, let's stand. With that in mind, as we go to prayer, before I ask for a general show of hands for prayer requests, let's bow our heads for a moment. If there's anyone here today who would like to specifically be prayed for, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'd like you to raise your hand. Okay, I see those hands. I'm going to pray for you first. Father, I lift up each one that just raised their hand. We're reminded of Acts chapter 2 when they were gathered together in the upper room just like we're gathered here this morning and they were praying and seeking your face and your spirit came into the room like a mighty rushing wind it rested on each one there was a vision of tongues of fire over them and they all began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance and Lord we certainly recognize that that gift is part of the package with your Holy Spirit. But Lord, however you choose to move on each one here this morning, Lord, we just do honor that request and we stand in agreement with each one of these men and women who has raised their hand, desiring to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, you told us to ask, to seek, to knock, and that you love to give your Holy Spirit to those who ask. So we ask now humbly in Jesus' name for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Lord, upon each one, that has raised their hand, and I pray that you would help each one to completely yield their life over to you, Lord, not only for salvation, but also for being filled with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to have the gifts of the Spirit activated and actualized in their lives this morning. And we thank you, Lord, and we trust you. We walk by faith, not by sight, and you told us if we would ask, we would receive, and so we believe it, and we receive it in Jesus' name. And now I'm going to ask for a show of hands for other prayer requests. Okay. Quite a few there. Father, you see each one. You know what's on each heart and each mind. Lord, it could be a physical issue, an illness type of an issue. We pray for healing. Lord, we know that you are the God who heals. You're our great physician. And Lord, we don't propose to always know your ways or what your plans are. But Lord, we do know that you love us. And you know and understand our pain, our suffering, our difficulties. We pray for physical healing, Lord, whether it would be allergies or flu or cold or whatever it might be, Father, cancer, lung, respiratory disease. Lord, it makes no difference. Arthritis, it's all the same to you. None is more difficult than another. Lord, we pray that you pour out your healing upon each one here this morning who has that kind of a request, either for themselves or someone near and dear to them. Lord, that you'd pour out your healing in Jesus' name and that you would receive all the glory for it. We would be quick to praise your name and to let others know that you have healed us, you have touched us, and you have strengthened us. Lord, I pray for those with mental and emotional issues. Lord, we know that's where the enemy tends to attack in the realm of the mind, the heart and the mind, to try to take us down by messing with our thought processes, our Carnal desires. And so we pray, Lord, for healing for those who are struggling with anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, anger, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, and unforgiveness. Lord, we rebuke all those. We renounce all those things in Jesus' name and ask that you would keep them far from us. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, for healing for those who are particularly struggling and perhaps even to the point of having to take some type of a medication antipsychotics, and so forth. Lord, we would rather rely upon you and depend upon you and not have those side effects. So we do pray for healing in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for relationships that have been damaged or broken. Lord, you are, again, the one who heals, restores, renews, the God of second chances and fresh starts. We pray for healing in relationships that have been damaged or broken, Lord, whether it be a marriage, a friendship, a neighbor, a coworker. Lord, you know what's going on in each person's life. And you are the God who restores. You promised to restore the years the canker worm has eaten. Lord, the enemy wants to come and eat away at our relationships. He comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. We ask you to restore those damaged and broken relationships and and help us to be the ones, to be the initiators, the first ones to step out and to try to make reconciliation. We ask this in Jesus' name. And finally, we pray, Lord, for financial issues. We're living in perilous times. The economy is getting worse and worse. Food supplies are getting more and more scarce. Gasoline, Lord, it's all going crazy. We thank you that you are our provider. We put our hope, our trust, our faith in you. We, Lord, we ask you to help us not to grow weary, not to faint, not to give up or give in, but to hang firm, hang tough in you. And we do pray for your provision. Lord, for all the needs you promised to take care of us, if we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, then all the other things would be added to us, Lord. Help us to stand on that promise and not to waver, not to doubt. And Lord, we ask you to give us wisdom on how to manage the resources that we do have, and how, if possible, in, a, in an honest way of full of integrity, to, to expand our resources when we are able, that you would show us and give us wisdom, But help us to be good stewards, Lord. And as we do that, we do thank you in advance for your blessings and your provision. We thank you for this time together this morning for the start of a new book. We look forward to a great study in the book of Daniel. And we ask you to receive now our final offering of praise this morning in Jesus' name.